Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Alec Russell, editor of the FT Weekend, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. The Russian activist Alexei Navalny has been a thorn in the side of President Vladimir Putin for a decade now. He's braved persecution, he's been imprisoned, and yet he seems dauntless. Our correspondent Max Seddon met him for lunch in a food court in Moscow recently. Max is on the line now with me to discuss his impressions. But first, I'd like to open with a clip from the meeting which gives a flavour of the character of the man. Max, my Russian's rather rudimentary. What is Mr Navalny saying here? So we were wandering around the food court where he took me for lunch, which is just across the street from his office in a slightly out of the way but rapidly gentrifying part of southeastern Moscow. And this is the sort of place that even a few years ago didn't exist. In Russia, they've got food around the world from you know, burgers, pasta, sushi, to Dagestani dumplings and Uzbek pilaf and other things. And what Navalny's saying is that a place like this, it shows you in his mind that Russia as a whole could have really made it economically if it weren't for Putin. And he described Putin as this glass ceiling that's more like a hideous, moldy Soviet ceiling that has stopped Russia from economically developing properly. He thinks that despite the huge spike in wealth in the first few years of Putin's rule, which was mostly due to rising oil prices, he views the last two decades as lost decades because he says that so much has been stolen that could have gone towards economic development and there are so many repressive rules and regulations that are holding it back. You've covered Russia for quite a while now. These are quite strong and outspoken remarks. How rare is it for a Russian activist to speak out like this? How brave is it to speak out like this? I first interviewed Navalny about seven years ago, and the thing that is really remarkable about him when you speak to him, as I've done many times since, is just how much of a breath of fresh air he is compared to your official Russian politicians who come from the Soviet bureaucratic tradition. They are very bad at talking to normal people in unmanaged settings. You almost never see them give interviews to the independent media where they might face difficult questions. Navalny grew up completely outside the system. He's someone who was formed by the internet and by the street. And even compared to other people in the opposition, he's a very charismatic person. And this is what has really set him apart, even amongst all the pressure that he faces to become the undisputed most popular challenger to Putin in the last few years. As you say, you've known him for a while, you've covered Russia for a while. Tell us how he entered politics. I mean, what made him take on this role? Navalny's part Ukrainian on his father's side, and he has relatives who lived near Chernobyl outside Kiev in Ukraine. And for the first 10 years of his life, up until the blast itself in 1986, he would go and stay with his grandmother, who lived in this village right near the nuclear power station. And the aftermath of that, that we know so well, and the incompetent Soviet attempts to cover it up were a very big part of what shaped him, because he doesn't have any of this nostalgia for the Soviet Union 
that Putin has been very big on promoting and a lot of people older than Navalny, who's just 43, share. He was very much convinced by this early childhood experience that the system was wrong and that the future Russia had to move away from it as far as possible, more towards a European liberal democracy, as he sees it. The other thing he told me that really shaped him was when he was already in his late 20s, he was working pro bono as a lawyer for an opposition party, but it was an official opposition party in Russia. There are the official parties who are there to create a semblance of a real political system, though they're really de facto controlled by the Kremlin, and the parties themselves are run like chiefdoms, just like Putin's own party, and the leaders are these mini-Putins. And he was working on Moscow City Council elections in 2005 and ran against Russia's incredibly corrupt court system. And he said gradually it just made him so furious that he became an activist. Yeah, it's quite a story. I mean, you say he's not nostalgic for the Soviet Union. Interestingly, he is, though, it seems, something of a Russian nationalist. Can you talk us through this and what influence it has on him and how nationalist is he? Well, Navalny was actually kicked out of the Liberal Party that he was a member of in 2007 for his nationalist views of the sort that you would never hear discussed in polite company among liberals in Moscow. And the views that he expressed were very different from the nationalism that you might think of associating with Putin, which is more the Soviet imperial nostalgia. Navalny's was much more Russian ethnic chauvinism verging into racism against people from the periphery of the Soviet empire. So the Caucasus, Chechnya, Dagestan, and places in Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, who provide millions of guest laborers who come and do construction jobs and other things like that in Moscow, the center of the empire. And he filmed some pretty startling videos, including one which showed him comparing people from the Caucasus to cockroaches and mocking shooting them with a gun. He spent several years organizing this annual nationalist rally, which was attended by all sorts of neo-Nazis and skinheads, as well as other people. At uh, one of these rallies, he used an anti-Semitic blood libel trope to talk about Jewish oligarchs. Did you talk about this over your lunch? Does he apologize for any of this? We did. This is something that Navalny has criticized for quite a lot, even though it's not really a very big part of his program anymore. He only really says he wants a visa regime for guest laborers from Central Asia. But he has no regrets. His explanation was that in 2007, there was this enormous gap between living standards in Russia and Uzbekistan, and millions of people were coming from Central Asia to work in Russia, and it was a big political issue. So the message is sort of, you know, this was just my rhetoric. It was a way of trying to get people interested. Max, the interview you did with Navalny was for our weekly Lunch with the FT slot, which normally unfolds in fairly predictable lines, could a swanky restaurant, just two people, the FT journalist and the interviewee. This was rather different. You were joined by someone for your interview. Can you tell us about this? Weirdly enough, this was my third lunch for the FT that I've done, and every single time I've been joined by someone who I don't expect to be there. And this time, we were followed by a troll who apparently works for one of the fake news farms run by Evgeny Prigozhin, the Kremlin caterer who runs the infamous St. Petersburg troll factory. So he walked out of the office building, this guy yelled at him, Alexei, can you tell us where do you buy your cocaine? And Navalny told him to get lost. And the guy followed us around as we wandered around the food court. And then when we bought our food, he then sat at the table across from us and watched us for the entirety of the two-hour interview. And Navalny said that for the last six, nine months or so, ever since his foundation started investigating Prigozhin's catering contracts, these people have been following him and his family around everywhere they go. Was he listening to you or just sitting there to be kind of threatening-ish? 
It was more intimidation. I mean, this was someone who was 25 at most, maybe younger, and obviously not being paid a lot of money to do this. But the point is clearly just to harass him the entire time. He was trying to laugh about it. He said it's a good way to practice Zen, but he came pretty close to snapping a few times. And it was obvious that if your family's being harassed like that, he's accused Prigozhin of being behind a physical assault with an iron bar on the husband of one of his top aides. I mean, the impression you get from this story and from other accounts of Navalny's life is that the pressure he faces is utterly relentless. And he's been facing this for a long time. How does he keep going? One of the questions that I've asked him many times over the years, and he always finds himself trying to explain is, you know, why aren't you in jail? Why aren't you dead? And the answer, as best as anyone can tell, seems to be that he's almost become too big to jail, because when they tried to do it in 2013, he was sentenced to five years in prison in what was fairly clear retaliation for his work. The European Court of Human Rights later said the case was politically motivated. But then there were big protests outside the Kremlin, and he was let out the next day. And so since then, they've tried to find other ways of pressuring him. They even they tried him again in another fraud case. And he was given a suspended sentence. But his brother, who had absolutely no connection to his political activity, was sent to prison for three and a half years. And these things have really enraged him. And I think that anger is actually really what motivates him. He's had opportunities to give up. And a lot of other people in the situation, people like Gary Kasparov, have faced pressure that's maybe a tenth of that and said, I've had it. This is enough. I'm going to move to the West. This isn't worth it. But he is really focused on seeing things through to the end. And it's, I think that the anger from the pressure is really a big part of what drives him. I mean, in your account of your interview, you write very powerfully about the brutal repression that some of his supporters face. And it seems that the tactics of the Kremlin, if one can put it this way, are broadly to go down hard on some of his supporters. So in the last few months after he helped organize this big wave of protests in Moscow, there was one of, if not the largest police raids in Russian history on more than 200 places across the country simultaneously in all 45 cities where he has offices. And it's quite clearly an attempt that maybe, you know, they can't break Navalny, but they can break the people who are helping him and they make him feel guilty. One activist in uh, Voronezh in southern Russia for Navalny, they searched his grandmother's house and confiscated her iPad and scared the 79-year-old woman so much that she had a heart attack and died. In Kazan, the head of his office there was in late stage cancer in September, a few weeks before she died, and they still hauled her off to be interrogated. And the way that Navalny put it was their tactic is to leave the leaders alone, but just randomly take ordinary people, jail them for nothing. It undermines trust in the leaders and the movement. It's like they're saying, look, this one set it all up, and here he is eating chicken noodles with a suspicious foreigner while the ordinary people are in jail. The very striking thing, of course, about looking at Navalny's career and profile from afar is that eight years ago, he inspired these huge protests. And I remember outside commentators speculating, could this be a real turning point for Putin? Eight years on, again, as you write in your piece, you know, Putin's expanding Russia's influence around the world. And I wonder if you could just explain to us how popular Navalny is these things are difficult to measure. What we saw this summer, these were the biggest protests that there have been in Moscow since those protests nearly eight years ago now. So there's a core of maybe you know, 50 to 100,000 people in Moscow ready to go out and protest. But I think what's really changed is that the economic situation is significantly worse in Russia. 
real incomes have declined for six years in a row. They had to raise the retirement age last year. And as a result, Putin's approval rating is lower than ever before. And I think what you're seeing now is that more and more ordinary people are upset enough that firstly, outside Moscow, which was really a change that Navalny brought in two years ago, he was the first person to really inspire big protests across the country in uh, well over 100 cities. And people are more willing to go out and protest, even if police ban the protests and uh, try to beat up and arrest everyone who shows up. And I think especially younger people, which is a big part of his support base, feel like they've less to lose. But he's also been successful, I think, alone among the Russian opposition, reaching people who are older and not necessarily part of his support base, but his economic message might appeal to them. So his rhetoric has become much more left-wing in recent years. He's been trying to start trade unions because Russia doesn't have a real trade union movement across the country for government employees like doctors and nurses. And they've had some success in fighting against corrupt officials and getting the proper salaries paid to them and things like that. Again, this is still a drop in the ocean compared to Putin's support. But the thing that he said to me that Putin is very worried about is that eventually this economic resentment is going to build up more as if it's uh, being kept out by a dam. And at some point it's going to burst. Max, Russia, vast country, of course. How does Navalny get his message out to all the outlying parts? In Russia, more than I think about 75% of people get their news primarily from TV. And on TV, Navalny is either not mentioned at all, or if he is, it's in the context that he's some sort of CIA spy and criminal. So he has had to bypass any kind of official media by going online, where he's been more and more successful in recent years. He's got millions of followers on Twitter and YouTube, and he comes across as much more of a regular guy. He's even tweeted asking for people to give him advice on how to beat difficult levels on video games that he plays. He will repost memes of silly cats or other funny videos that you or I might find amusing. And his real success has been YouTube, where he did this absolutely spectacular corruption investigation into the prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, nearly three years ago now. And it was on YouTube only, but it quickly racked up 20 million views in a matter of weeks. And it inspired these nationwide protests in more than 100 places of the sort that had never really been seen before Navalny did it. And they've tried to stop him, but the Kremlin seems to be wary that if they just completely shut Navalny down, deprive him of access to the internet, throw him in jail, and that could create a huge backlash. And so there's a sort of uneasy balance where he's still allowed to exist on the internet and the Kremlin doesn't quite know what to do with him. Well, Max, thank you very much. Thank you for a terrific and important interview. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on how health websites share your personal data, Generation Z, or indeed Ukraine's role in the US impeachment inquiry, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.